You are listening to New Music Box from New Music USA, presented in collaboration with DubLab Radio as part of a series where we feature conversations, DJ mixes, articles, and live performances that explore the current landscape of music composition. I think it's good to not pay attention, Mark. <laughs> whoop de boop dee well, it is wonderful to be here. So I'm here with Mark Muller's Bar, and we're going to be talking about everything from composing to postcards and how we end up colliding with these different worlds. So, Mark, how are you doing today? I'm peachy. <laughs> yeah, it's a good day, actually. What has been good about the day so far? Oh, well, <laughs> I, I have to fast today, so it makes me stop myself from walking into one room in particular, which I won't mention the name of it, uh, that has things to eat in it. How? Uh, oh, okay, not the toilet. Oh, no. No, that, no, I, no I wasn't thinking of that. Um, how often do you fast? Not that often. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> We'll see how good this, how good, how long this lasts. So we can erase all of this. We could just start <laughs> over right now, and I'd be very happy. <laughs> how are you doing? I'm good. I'm I'm really good. I had a good morning of meditation and writing, which is something I do every morning. Like actually, the first thing I do before I get on, you know, phones or computers or whatever, is hmm. meditate and write. And uh, yeah, it, it really makes a big difference, I find, anyway. What, what do you write? Well, anything from poems to what happened yesterday, part journal, but also any creative, any lyrics or any ideas. Yeah, just whatever, really, whatever comes out. I like that. Yeah. That, you know, we, that's something we have a little bit in common. I, I have something where I make myself write or draw or put information down on cards every day. And do you always do that in the morning? No. What usually happens is I'm working on something and, uh, and now Zoom makes it so easy to be like to like be working on a project but at the same time doing something else. Uh, you see people moving their hands a little bit and you're like, eh, they're up to something. For what happens to me is is if I don't do it, I wake up at like three or four in the morning and I go, oh my God, I forgot to do that today. So I have to go, so then I get up and and I draw or I write something down. Is that ever also music or is it usually postcards and um, words for postcards and things like that? Well, it, it started on cards back in the late 60s. I got into um, mail art was something that it was called back in the days and people would put some artwork on a, postcard and put a two cent stamp on it I think it took back in those days and you put it in the mail and send it to somebody and it could be somebody you don't know or somebody you do know there were some artists like uh, Rauschenberg and different people that, that you could send them something and then you could be an unknown 18 year old kid in Akron Ohio and get something back and and it was very shocking and and empowering in mm. a way. You know, it was exciting. Anyhow, so yeah. So I started doing that, and then, yeah, it, it has a lot to do with music and art for me. I mean, I started keeping them because I used to just mail them out. I started keeping them after 
I wrote this song, Uncontrollable Urge, one night while Devo and I, while we were, the day before we rehearsed, and then we rehearsed it, and I came home after Devo was playing it, and I wrote a second verse down on a card, and I mailed it out the next day, and then I got to rehearsal that night, and I could not remember the second <laughs> verse. So it's like, uh, it, it ended up so that that song only has one verse. I sing the same verse twice. No, yeah. because you sent I, the verse to, to Rauschenberg. Know, somebody, somebody got it, yeah. <laughs> Mark, that's horrible, cool, huh? but horrible. also amazing that you, so you had this perfect verse that you will never see again. Well, it's, yeah, it's long gone. I, <laughs> I let go of it a long time ago. Yeah, and so then I started, but then I started collecting that stuff and thought, well, you know, it, it's kind of going to be like an image and an, and an idea and a, and a thought bank. So, mm. so. And would those things just come to you? Like, is it the classic thing, which I definitely experience where you feel like you got an antenna up there and then you're picking up on something and, you know, you just capture it? Yeah, I mean, through the years, I mean, we're talking like 50 plus years or something now. But but through the years, you know, it changed from being like automatic writing or being on purpose, kind of like, I, I, I kind of always wished I, I was a few years older and I could have been a beatnik. And I missed it by just a few years. And then it was like hippies came along. And so Damn I kind of had to, had to settle for that for a while. But I always thought beatnik writing and their thoughts had kind of influenced pop music and and especially all of the the bands that were coming out after that in the 60s and 70s and 80s i thought they you know their lyrics i mean their poems mm. sounded like lyrics for things that showed up later i mm. don't know so i always liked that and so i started but i kept everything then and so now i have a unwieldy collection of Im of information on cards Wow. There I, you go. That ought to... I knew about your cards from a perspective of postcards yeah. and artwork and ideas, but I'd never realized they also went into your songwriting as, and composing as well. So that's really interesting. It's like having an artistic bank of all your material. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, oftentimes I wake up in the middle of the night and I've got this perfect idea for a piece of music or some lyrics or something, and, and I go... I gotta write that down. I wish I wasn't so tired. And then I don't do it, and then it's not there the next day. It it went somewhere else. Somebody else got the idea, I guess, or went to another brain instead yeah. of mine. Have you written any of those down? Like, have you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I try to make myself get up and do it, and and I keep stuff handy so that it makes it easier. I have that in a different way where. Not so much in the middle of the night, thankfully, because I'd probably also miss it. But I remember a time like being in a group of people in Portugal with friends and family and then just suddenly being like, oh, I've got to go to the other room. There's a song that's there. And yeah, it feels weird. You also feel like a kind of antisocial weirdo to be like, I have to leave. And um, But yeah, so many songs have come out words melody like the whole thing where i'll record it and then afterwards i'll go back and listen to the recording and then write out the lyrics from the recording because like all the words everything's already there and almost so, weirdly it feels like sometimes the 
arrangement is inherent within that. It's like the song comes, I'm already hearing this, the string arrangement or mm-hmm. you know, the, the yeah. builds and the swells, and that's really an interesting thing. Yeah, there's a lot of people that just wrote me off as being autistic anyhow, so it, it all works out. Do you remember the first thing you ever wrote? Kind of, yeah. Uh, I was like 12 or 13, uh, I'd seen the Beatles, and after a few mishaps, I finally bought a Beatle album. And uh, I used to go down in the basement and turn the stereo up really loud and pretend I was in that I was the fifth Beatle and that when one of them needed to take a break on stage, they'd look over and point at me and I'd come over and they'd hand me their instrument, whatever, whoever it was, and I'd keep playing their part for them. And then they'd go smoke a cigarette and drink some coffee and then they'd come back. But I had just gotten an album by The Cream and there was a long solo and... I wrote a song that that's had a, had some chords in it, and then it had a really long solo in it, and then it came back and had a few chords that ended it. What was the cream song? Uh, what was the name of it? I feel like it was named after a reptile, like a, or maybe that's what I called mine. I can't remember yeah. now. I'd have to go look at the album again. Was it just music? Was it instrumental? It was instrumental. Yeah, uh, that was the first thing. Yeah, there was a home organ in in our house, and so I could play. It on the organ and pretend I could hear the, the drums and the and the other people and then I'd just kind of be sitting there for this whole long drum solo and then <laughs> it would come back in at the end. So it had like about probably about a minute's worth of, of my participation in the music and then the, this unknown drummer did the rest of the song. And do you feel like you've always like heard? Have you always approached composing or music, hearing the whole world of it as opposed to just? individual parts it's like you hear the whole the whole thing not always sometimes it's just you know a scrap of a melody and then it turns into the theme song for a, a film you're working on or or a song you're working on you know sometimes it's it's just a small idea and then you elaborate on it you, you don't know what it is until you you know till you finish working mm. how about you you hear instrumental stuff first is that it no, I like sometimes it can be a, a poem which then feels like it's a song or sometimes it can be, you know, you hear fragments of the music first. I would say the thing that happens often is that it comes as a whole, you know, very much I can see it almost like a film. Like uh, there are a few songs where one in particular called To Be Saved, which was like a four-act, either a four-act play or a film, and it was so cinematic, and it wasn't my story, It was, but it was a very, very specific story that was quite dark and intense and specific, and it came, you know, the whole thing, and I kind of listened to it, or I played it back, and I was like, whoa, well, what's that? And I remember calling my mom up, and I was like, uh, Mom, I have this song and it's either terrible or it might be kind of interesting and I played it to her over the phone and at the end she's like oh whoa where did that come from <laughs> and um yeah I, I always had that visual I think that's maybe what it is that visual story component where it's like you see the whole thing as a as a play or as a you see as much the visuals as you hear the music how long was it it was like five minutes I was invited to play a show at the Marquee Club in celebration of Jack. It was a Jack Kerouac festival with all these beats. All the old beatniks. Yeah, yeah, who was still alive. And 
And I'd just written this song and I was like, oh, this is a bit, maybe this is too heavy for this audience. But then I ended up playing it. And this composer called David Amram was accompanying me on flute. And at the end of the song, he's like, okay, you're coming out to play my New York show. And, you know, on the basis of that track. So that was my first American performance as a teenager. Hmm. Yeah. Not bad. Do you feel like you see, do you see music? I think all the, the different senses overlap. Yeah, and, you know, oftentimes it started with Devo for sure, you know. We we sometimes had ideas for a film before we had ideas for the song, and we would, like, then make a, write a song to allow us to be able to film the film we wanted to make. So, yeah, I, I see that stuff overlapping. Do you? Yeah, definitely. With raw space, with this anti-stream from the Bell Labs Anacoic Chamber as this live 360 AR stream, mm-hmm. I saw the visual worlds of the songs I wanted to create, not even as music videos, but as like visual landscapes, taking people into these landscapes of the tracks. And it was so exciting to be able to bring that back into the record experience in this digital age where we kind of lost all of that. That really informed which songs I then brought into the chamber, which ones I wrote, and it very much influenced the arranging, the production, because suddenly you got this whole room to fill. Mm-hmm. Um, so it made you think about you know, how you were arranging the tracks. For me, I think I've just never been able to disconnect the whole sensory experience of music. As you said, it's like all the senses or the ways that we're engaging with material, they're all kind of interconnected and so when you take the visual or the tangible or the ceremonial out of the music experience which we did when we moved from physical to digital it's like how can you bring that back into the equation because I feel like that's almost the scene setting for the song you know that sets up the music having this whole other kind of uh, stage for it in a way yeah I could see that you know it's like um I think it kind of explains why a lot of the kids that write digitally would come over here just so they could look at like this thing that was down in the basement, Tonto. A friend of mine, uh, Bob Margoloff and Malcolm Cecil had built it in the early, early 70s. And it was this really uh, visual, interesting, it looked like you were inside an eyeball, a giant orb. Uh, So it's almost like you were in a Sputnik or something. And um, it was old tube technology, a mixture of Buchla and, and Moog and ARP and a couple other companies. And, um, you know, people would come over and they'd play with that stuff. And, and, it, and it was more tactile and they're, you know, patching chords. But they almost always ended up leaving and having um, the same realization is that that was a really hard way to, to make music. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you couldn't keep your sounds the next day. You know, it, they would change, even if the settings were the exact same, just mm. electricity or the temperature or humidity would change the sound. And so they they gained more respect for their digital world. And, you know, it's, it's like, I like it all. It's yeah. all kind of like, you know, different kinds of paint. Oh, definitely. I was thinking more about how digital took out the physical art form. And, yeah, yeah. That's, that's what, but you know, this is like the difference. And yeah. then they're like crawling around, plugging things in, dialing knobs instead of just looking at a list of pre, you know, created sounds yeah. that, 
that people tend to do because you get into a digital synth these days and they're very deep and just making little changes is um, much more complex mm. than it was with the simple early brontosaurus type um, synthesizers. And you built your own instruments. Yeah. Yeah, that came a, a little later. But mm. Yeah. Tell me a bit about that because that's like adding a whole other layer of constructing what you're hearing in your head. Yeah, a couple things happened at the same time is, is how that ended up happening for me. Is One of them was I just was alarmed at all of the old, beautiful, majestic pipe organs that were being dismantled. And on eBay, at least, they were being turned into like, um, they'd take these beautiful 150-year-old wooden pipes and saw them up and turn them into birdhouses and um, spice racks. And I, I was panicking over it. And at first, I just bought all all I could. I bought thousands of organ pipes off of these things that had been torn apart, you know, you know, like um, churches and schools and different institutions that like had gone, well, do we pay $20,000 to have all the leather on the bellows redone? Uh, or do we buy a $300 Korg synth that has choir and church organ and cathedral all all set on it? So we just put it under our arm and carry it in and set it on top of the decommissioned uh, keyboard that's there now. So I started buying that stuff, and then I, I also I also just collect sound-making things, instruments and otherwise. And, you know, it, I've done like about 200 TV series, I mean about 100 TV series and almost 100 films and a whole bunch of, uh, you know, video games, you know, for PlayStation and all the different formats they have. And, and I just kind of, I kind of got bored with working with the same instruments and the same people and mm. the same bands, you know, all the time. And and the idea of putting stuff together like that, I, I took organ pipes that were mismatched and and I took like about 60 bird calls. And, and at first I was recording them, but then it just sounded, it sounded kind of fake because people have sophisticated sense of, you know, hearing now anyhow. They know when it's a drum machine instead of a a real human playing yeah. the drums, you know, because the snare never sounds exactly the same from beat to beat. There's little differences. You hit it lighter or harder or off to the side or something, and it changes the tone just enough that you can tell the difference when it's a human or if it's just the machine playing. Mm. And so when, when the bird calls all had the exact same intonation, I found somebody that had helped me repair a calliope that I had once who this guy got into helping me make mechanical, you know, mechanisms just just these mechanisms that would blow air through through the bird calls mm. and through the pipes and stuff and and then it just kept going bigger i started collecting doorbells i got a good collection of american doorbells which sound totally different from east european doorbells i, I, I bought imagine. a bunch of them from in prague and in hungary and poland i have a bunch of polish old you know like world war ii era yeah doorbells and they sounded totally different so i started putting those together as, an, as instruments and why specifically know. america and eastern europe those are the ones i could find <laughs> <laughs> they were the i i don't know what doorbells uh, sound like in china to be well probably our doorbells sound like chinese doorbells but those were the ones i could find yeah. i could find those in like flea markets and antique stores and uh other places mm. And um, so, you know, I just started making instruments like that. And, and you can make things that don't sound like anything else and that you couldn't play on any other instrument. So, 
Well, and in a way, that's like the antithesis of what the technology era has ushered in, which is a lot of very well emulated pads and yeah, sound banks sound. and everything like that. Really good stuff, but yeah. you and 10 million other people all have the same sounds. Absolutely. You know, so that, that's, that's what it was. It was just having more time on my hands than I needed, so kept me busy. Just too much time, Mark. Too much time, <laughs> I know. Definitely in the different projects, you know, technology has been a big aspect of the presentation of these worlds. But weirdly, in the on the music side, I really like to keep it as raw and almost minimal as possible. It's like it goes the totally other way. And like that specific chamber, that Bell Labs anechoic chamber, what I found so fascinating about that is you're in a space where there's no reverb, there's no EQ, there's no softening, there's literally nothing. You're in the rawest environment and you're listening. Firstly, you're listening to silence in a totally new way because how often do we even hear silence these days? Never. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not really, unless you're in a very remote location. You're, yeah. you're correct. You never hear silence. And so, yeah, you, when you reprogram yourself with the silence and you reset yourself, and that it was a space where Cage and all these people were doing experiments, sound experiments. And I really understood why, because it's this huge, huge chamber. And so you think something's going to be reflective or there's going to be some pipe or whatever that bounces a certain frequency and yet there's nothing and it really changed my perception on on a lot of things and and also made me very conscious of what you then bring into the silence it's like when you start off with this amazing silence you're like well it has to be good enough to break the silence and i think also just recording in that space like i love being in environments where you record and the resonance and the history and the all of that almost becomes part of the piece. Also like Montague oh, yeah. Square and the which became the jacket, the musical jacket. Is that something you think about as well? Like do you think of where you're recording and does that influence how you're approaching a piece? Yeah. I mean the building we're in right now, I've composed music here for almost thirty years now. And it is so far away from being a professional recording studio. It's like oftentimes I'm, I'm recording something for a film or some project in the other room here, like with a guitar or on some violins or something. And then we kind of have to do another take because that one had some truck out there backfiring or, or a helicopter went over. And um, there's something about that that I really like, all that stuff, and sometimes I leave it in. And that's the other way to think about it is mm -hmm. all the sounds... And um, I don't know, maybe that's... Um, yeah, that's a lovely anti-anti-echo chamber where that becomes also part of the piece. And yeah, and some of it's, you know, like just unplanned. And I kind of like surprises. Mm. So I don't have any place that's very quiet here. If you're recording it at Abbey Road versus, you know, mm -hmm. Air, or like, are there things where you're, you know also that has a particularly good environment for strings or... Yeah. Yeah, you know, um, I do a lot of, I've done a lot of animation, and oftentimes you want a big orchestra, not always, but Abbey Road, for instance, has a different sound than Air Studio, which is, you know, just kind of on the other side of town, and you use one or the other for specific reasons. Uh, they both sound great. I think of Air Studio as being a little crisper, and I think of uh, Abbey just having a little bit of 
have a little bit of just natural reverb in the room, which mm. can be good or bad with animation. Because sometimes, you know, you have things that stop and start really fast and, you know, you want it to be really exact. So, uh, yeah, I always think about the rooms. I always think about where I'm going to record. As a conceptual artist, like, do you feel that changes how you approach these audio projects? Yeah, there was one TV show. It was uh, I'll never do it again, but Devo was on tour and we had a touring bus and the place where I could sit, you know, what when everybody went to sleep after the show and then there was this one little area I could go to the back of the bus and I could set up my gear and I could set up my computer and look at pictures. I heard like this rumbling of <laughs> of like these big tires in the back and and of the uh, the transmission back there and I think it really affected the way I wrote the music for the show. And, you know, In what way? Well, you know, it's like I was kind of shocked when I heard it after I sent it to them. And um, everything seemed like I had taken out bottom end and, and I had left space because of that. Uh, I ended up making it a little more minimal than if I would have written the exact same music here in this room, for instance. You know, I think, you know, the more other stuff that gets added to it, like natural reverb and stuff, mm. you you take that into consideration and you leave space to accommodate it. Mm. I don't know, do, do you? Yeah, that question to I me. I mean, that's the opposite side <laughs> from your thing because you were doing it totally clean, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, in the chamber, it was the super chamber, clean. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you start hearing your body. <laughs> you do. You hear the blood rushing through your veins. Apparently, none of the engineers could stay in there longer than 20 minutes because they start to go crazy. So then there must be something really weird with me because I ended up staying in there hours and now it's like a hundred hours I've been in that room. Maybe you're bloodless. Try, have you got a knife? Let's test this theory. No. Um, or maybe you just have clean arteries and so I think it so. just moves through really yeah. without any um, struggle. But then I did these performances so that part of the music was being recorded in there for this anti-stream record experience. But then I was also doing these live performances in there where instead of the record triggering the live animations and these lyrics and artwork coming off the record player and the vinyl, they'd be coming off me and the guitar and out of my mouth. And, and then we'd invite the audience to come in and be in that space and to hear the music in that environment. And there were so many people, you know, very seasoned producers or whatever, you know, the usual types yeah. that were like, this is, this is mind-blowing because... Mm -hmm. First, just hearing sound in that way and where like it's so directional that as soon as you turn even 90 degrees or less, it cuts off completely. You know, so if I were to turn away from you, you would no longer hear it. But then also how today we're trying to do the opposite. We're trying to take out the imperfections and the, the ugly sound. You know, the sound in the chamber, it was not pretty, but it was beautiful because it was so like unadulterated. And so I think people were really responding to that like, oh, wow, this is this is what sound sounds like without all the other stuff. So that was definitely an experience. I like that. You know, I, I've been in anacolic chambers before. Uh, my brother has one in Ohio. Speaking of science, actually, the last time I was here with you, we were talking about how to turn particle collisions into something. So that was kind of odd. Yeah. They're in the news right now for some reason. Oh, I'm yeah. trying to think about what it is, something about uh, 
antimatter is, it's that is, Mr. Antimatter has gone, yeah. has gone crazy. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting talking to those guys. They think about something totally different than all the rest of us. Oh, definitely. Well, they're thinking on like such a micro scale. It's a it's sort of fascinating paradox of how something so tiny can also be so immense. Antimatter. <laughs> he was a big Devo fan. Uh, you know what? You're right. That guy was a Devo fan. Yeah. That was, you set him on the path to be Mr. Antimatter. Hmm. I wonder how that's worked <laughs> out. I think it's worked out okay. He seems to like the job, doesn't he? Or does he not? Can you remember? Did he like uh, he it? Seemed to, he seemed yeah, I think he liked it. I know he was very happy, but he was, hmm. he was a lone sheep in the sun. Yes. <laughs> um, Nobody would hang around him. No. They're like, this guy's depressing. He's. <laughs> Antimatter. Talking about recording in different spaces. Do you know Calm? It's like a meditation app. It helps people sleep and calm down. And um, it's a mallet you order through the mail, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I ended up being their first content creator. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Like doing sleep stories and soundtracks and different things. And um, for one of the stories. Because I was writing the story, recording it, then doing the music, the sound effects, as we talked about, kind of building the whole world. But then I was like, oh, I want to take this, really take this out there. So a friend had ended up with Jack Gusteau's first Baja vessel somehow. So then I was like, well, we should record it out at sea. And then the sounds of the waves, we can actually have the real sounds of the waves and I'll write it around Gusteau and it can have this sort of inspired part fiction part related to him and we'll record it on this boat and it will tell this bigger story. So that was that was a lot of fun. Wow, you've done a lot of kind of interesting uh, alternate uh, pathway <laughs> music. I, I don't know how to describe it better than that, but you know, it's like um, my my musical instruments with foghorns seems um, seems modest by comparison. Yeah, I don't out know at about sea, that. up in outer space. Yeah, well, you got to. I feel like you got to put your tentacles out everywhere, Mark. You know, it's like we can be like mycelium. I think for me, I just I always saw music as just another form of storytelling, and so why wouldn't you? weave it into these spaces that it doesn't usually exist in. Open up its world. Yeah, I like that. I think one of the first things about you that kind of interested me is when you came over and you had a deck of cards that what you called your album. And I was like, dang, that's very cool. To me, that was something that I, Devo should have done at some time, but you got there first. You were more Devo than us. Yeah, that was a yeah record as a deck of cards. Weirdly, like a few weeks ago, I saw that I think a big music company or label has just started releasing NFC-enabled song cards. And quite nicely, there are a few people that are like, oh, this is what yeah. BT did in whenever it was. But yeah, just thinking differently, which, you know, I'm talking to like the king of thinking differently. So it's no surprise we ended up making a postcard project together. <laughs> yeah, that turned out to be... Although it was a surprise for me. It was quite a surprise. And yeah. It turned out to be interesting. And I don't know if you saw it there, but there's postcards that came in like in the last day or so uh, that are labeled postcard for democracy. On no way. People, yeah, so. So they're still coming in. Yeah, they won't give it up. Well, it's a pretty important time to keep the pressure on. You know, we're not out of the woods. 
No, we might be <laughs> we might be like tumbling down a very dark path right now for all we know. We'll see what happens. So Mark, very important question. Have you made a postcard or done some writing today? Both actually, yeah. Worked on some drums and a tuba today and and uh, also did the very last card of one more red book that'll go on a shelf in the red book library. How so. many red books are there now? There's like uh, somewhere close to 675 or 600 and few, somewhere in there. And it's that's all of the cards? Pretty much. All the ones I didn't mail out or lose. That's what I do, and that's, that's why they call me Mr. Excitement, yeah. That's why you're wearing your Mr. Excitement shirt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been lovely chatting. Have you got any last thoughts? I like it when people think of new ways to make art and they use technology or they use something that's relating to the time we're in. I mean, I go backwards all the time. I'm using orchestras all the time that are like hundreds of years old. And even 100 years ago, the futurists were like going, orchestras, they're so old school, you know, they, they don't contain the instruments to, to properly represent the industrial world. So, you know, I write so much music for those old antiquated things, but... I love it when, you know, you talk about ways that you first got into writing things and I see the things that you do and I'm, they, they impress me, you know, it's like I love all the, all your connection to moving forward and moving outward and, you know, as much as I love phones and the fact that there's this miracle thing like you can write music on your phone, you know, it's, it makes it so democratic for everybody, mm. you know, it's still, uh, I like it when people just turn away and go find new stuff and and um, that's you well it's you too i feel like thinking about the two simultaneously and often almost paradoxically like what can we keep alive and revive and then where can we innovate sort of taking the best of the old and the best of the new i think that's what really excites me and something like nfts which i know you and i have discussed it's like the worst of both those worlds and so like i think it's just that constant assessment of what is the stuff that we need to keep preserving and keep breathing life into because we haven't as human beings got better through using technology but then also where can we use technology to be better human beings all good things to think about. What are you working on at the moment? And you're probably working on so many things, but is there one thing that you're really most excited about that you're working on right now? Well, yes. I'm making a book that is basically about the postcards that we were talking about. That's that's the thing that I'm kind of enjoying a lot. And I'm committed to a 1,600-page book. Wow. I decided to put music in the book, and I think there's going to be around 200 pieces of music that two-thirds of them nobody's ever heard because for the last 30 years I've come to this building and I come in at six in the morning and then I write music for myself until about nine and then you know everybody shows up and we work on the things we're supposed to work on that day and then the next day I come back and at six and there's a bunch of it that I thought was interesting enough to put in in this book so it'll it'll accompany all these images of cards. Does it have a name? The book? Uh, the working title right now is Why Are We Here? Why are we here, Mark? <laughs> uh, well, you're probably going to look at the book and say, well, he doesn't know. That's for sure. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's the question. 
Well, and let's end on that question and everyone can think about why we are here because it is one of the great mysteries. All right. I got a, I got one last question for you. Okay. What are, are you working on these days, Beatty? Well, Mark, I'm working on a brain installation that's going to be at the London Design Biennale next year. It's a way of taking people inside the artist's brain and having them explore it and all the different channels. And so actually the channels I'm working on directly correlate with the different aspects like memory or visual arts or communications. And then the way it's going to be presented, which is probably too much of an explanation for now, but it's a it's this thinking cap. So people will be able to put on the thinking cap and hear what's going on in the brain. And the the data of each channel will actually be encoded in diamonds, man-made diamonds, as the first time this has ever been done, as the most durable material you can store data in. So it will be preserved for 10,000 years, this art piece, which is kind of interesting. Man, that's going to... Uh, that's going to be interesting to everybody. I think even the Kardashians <laughs> will want to know more about this. They are on the top of my list. That's the only people I want. I want some feedback from. Oh, uh, so. we need a we need a diamond encrusted thinking cap. We like that idea. <laughs> yeah, that's what's going on in my brain right now. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are you saying we get to find out what's going on in your brain if we? Oh yeah. Huh. Okay, I might have to go to London just for this. I'm curious. You're in my brain, Mark. You'll find yourself in my brain. Oh, okay. Oh. It's all just poems to Mark. <laughs> oh, well, maybe you just saved me a plane ticket. <laughs> okay. This program was produced by DubLab and supported by New Music USA and featured on New Music Box. Additional programs and more details available at newmusicusa.org and dublab.com. <laughs>